The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Therapeutic Approach to Growth with your host, Brooke Wagner. Each week, this program will focus on interests and expertise pertaining to special needs individuals and their families. We'll help you open up and connect while sharing powerful information. Now, here is Brooke Wagner. Welcome, everyone, to Therapeutic Approach to Growth. I am host Brooke Wagner, and our goal of the show is to offer support and resources and most importantly, hope to the special needs community. And today I have with me child and family psychiatrist and DIR specialist, Dr. Joshua Fader. And we will be discussing DIR, which stands for Developmental Individual Relationship Based, as well as floor time and how these approaches are used to support individuals with autism. So welcome, Dr. Fader. Oh, I'm excited to have you on today, and I know we've had a lot of um, conversations and opportunities to connect over the years, and I'm just so excited to have you on the show today and, and have you, you know, have the opportunity to share more about DIR and floor time. And um, to get us started, I'd love to hear more about your background. I know it's pretty extensive, so it would be great to learn more about um, your experiences thus far. Sure. Well, as you said, I'm a child and family psychiatrist. I didn't start out that way. I started out in biomedical engineering, went into brain theory, and then as part of that, studied a lot about psychology and got into working with people with developmental difficulties. This was as an undergrad at Boston University, where I was uh, working with people with congenital rubella, which creates blindness, deafness, and autistic-like behaviors in people. And that kind of got me into the field. I ended up going to medical school and, and through medical school, uh, decided I wanted to do uh, psychiatry and then child psychiatry. But throughout all that time, I've uh, worked with people with uh, developmental challenges as well as uh, people with trauma, um, which is sort of another piece of what I do. But in any case, the Navy, uh, your tax dollars, put me through medical school, and I was stationed here in uh, San Diego, where I am again now, ended up in Hawaii um, and doing a lot of work with uh, Dr. Bernie Lee, who... Mm-hmm. Uh, was at Triple uh, Army Medical Center and did a lot of work in uh, early identification of people with developmental disorders, autism, stuff like that. And I've been in the field, what, 11 years before uh, my own kid ended up having a regressive moment and uh, uh, ended up with a diagnosis himself. We did um, some very effective behavioral interventions and then uh, became aware of developmental approaches, moved to Washington, D.C., where I was lucky enough to become chief of child psychiatry at National Naval Medical Center, but during that time got to work with Stanley Greenspan, uh, who's uh, now passed away about six years ago, and Serena Weider, who runs Perfectum uh, at this point, and did a developmental approach with our son. So whereas we had been recommended actually to institutionalize him when he was young, he uh, was not institutionalized. He ended up in regular education, graduated from college a couple years ago, and is a working electrical engineer. 
great guy. Wow. Um, still on the spectrum, but a great guy. So my own personal journey has sort of matched my professional journey. And we got out of the Navy, came back here about 20 years ago, and I've been working in private practice, seeing families, doing research um, at, uh, in collaboration with UCSD, a little bit now with UCI, uh, and other institutions like the ICBL Graduate School and the Fielding Graduate School teaching as well. So teaching, research, clinical practice. My, my everyday life is clinical practice, and then I get to do a lot of other fun things uh, as well to try to help the field and uh, a lot of advocacy because we'll talk a little bit about what DIR and developmental approaches are, but it's important that people understand that um, the behavioral approaches, which really have most of the market share, are just one way of approaching uh, developmental disorders, and for some people it doesn't work very well. And these developmental approaches are, in fact, evidence-based, and although there's a lot of um, policy action to try to just have everybody get their ABA, it's important that people have a full spread of evidence-based approaches because not everything fits every family. We don't want one-size-fits-all treatment, and so we have to do a lot of policy work to try to ensure that there's adequate informed consent for families and adequate access for families to all approaches. Absolutely. No, I'm so glad you brought that up. And um, it's wonderful to hear about your extensive history in this field and, and the many fields you've been in. And, um, and you know, I couldn't agree with you more um, that it is so important for the families to have the awareness of what's available and for them to have that right to choose uh, what's right for their family. So um, I'm really glad you mentioned that. And that is really, you know, why I wanted you to come on today so that families could learn about DIR and floor time so that they were more informed of it being as an, another option, you know, for them to look at and to consider for their family. So um, let's talk about DIR and floor time. So um, can you tell me a little bit about the history of the program and how it has evolved um, over the years? Yeah, absolutely. So Stanley Greenspan and Serena Weeder working in the Washington, D.C. area back in 60s and 70s and 80s, um, were seeing a lot of families who were distressed. So these were typically low socioeconomic um, kind of families where there was a lot of turmoil, and they would observe um, parents and children not quite connecting with each other very well. And uh, they understood that uh, there were things about the child that might contribute to some of that difficulty if they had sensory difficulties, motor difficulties, and also things that the parent might contribute as well, stress that they were under depression uh, and those kinds of things. And what they figured out was that, um, and really building on the work of other people in the developmental field for about 100 years, they figured out that really the key was to try to help support an engaged interaction between caregivers and kids. And we're talking about parents or grandparents or teachers. Anybody working with a child needs to be able to be connected with them in a productive manner. And what we mean by that is both people are settled and regulated enough to be able to be part of the situation, that they are engaged with each other, meaning they have some positive regard for each other in that moment, and that there's a back and forth interaction, a flow of interaction that's meaningful, not just do this and do what I tell you to do or think what I tell you to think, but something that has meaning to both both parties. Well, as they developed this, it got kind of taken on by the developmental disorder community, people with kids with autism and related 
conditions started coming to Weider and Greenspan saying, gee, will this work for my kid? And what they found out over time is that, in fact, it was very helpful for a number of families. Um, and uh, so the DIR floor time model emerged from that. So to be more specific, developmental um, means talking about the different uh, ways in which people become more able to connect with others in the world. So starting with being settled enough to be able to be able to be part of an interaction. And you know babies, when they're little, they're kind of all kind of fidgety and crying and all this kind of stuff. They can take a few months for them to kind of settle out and even be present, be awake mm-hmm. enough at some point, be settled enough. So there's that piece. And then connected, that falling in love phase happening uh, a few months into babyhood that you see, you see parents and babies kind of holding their babies, you can kind of see that moment between them. But it happens in all human interactions. It's just it develops in the, you know, during the first year. And then those little back and forth cooing and movement, um, sometimes it happens during nursing, sometimes it happens in other kinds of early baby play. And that turns into a flow of interaction in which you can actually solve problems when the child's already falling back and forth and then toddling and walking. You can do stuff together that's solving the problem of I lost my ball and how are we going to find it? Or I'm hungry and how are we going to work together to eat and get food? There's a flow of interaction that occurs. As people become older, like about 18 months uh, or older, you start seeing what we call symbolic communication added to that, right? So uh, the ability to uh, play like symbolically with a baby doll and put it to bed or um, to uh, use um, a block that looks like kind of like a car and you're running your cars together in some fashion. And then after that, that uh, symbolic uh, thinking becomes much more elaborate. As you know, little kids, uh, three-and-a-half and four-year-olds, are often um, talking about uh, uh, princesses and knights and, you know, all these kinds of things. And mm-hmm. it's a lot of fantasy. It doesn't have a lot of logic, but by about age four, you're expecting it to be a little bit more logical. And there's other stages on and on to the point where people are you know, better developed and more able to think about their own thoughts and their adolescence and reflect and all that kind of stuff. But what we're talking about are these fundamental developmental capacities for social communication and interaction and learning that we're tracking along with people. And to be able to do those things You've you got to be kind of put together, right? So a lot of our kids on the spectrum and, and other people as well have trouble with these individual differences. So the model is called developmental, individual differences, relationship-based intervention. The developmental part is what I just talked about. The individual differences include sensory processing and motor ability. If you're too low tone, maybe you can't do what you need to do. If you're too sensitive to sound or not able to even detect uh, things in your environment, well, you're not, you're not connected in as well. Communication, and we're not just talking about language, we're talking about nonverbal and gestural kinds of communication as well, can also be problematic, both receiving as well as being able to express yourself and express your intent. So mm-hmm. sensory, motor, receptive, and expressive communication, visual spatial functioning, so whether you can... Uh, know where you are in a room or on a soccer field or whatever in your environment and be able to work with that. And, of course, executive function, which, of course, is a huge area, vast area. But almost all the people who we work with have difficulties with just attention and organization and very specifically, in a simplistic way, 
if you think about just having an idea, well, once you have an idea of something you want to do, can you get a plan? And once you have a plan, what are the steps, you know, and the sequence? And once you even have those steps and sequence, are you going to execute that plan? And then finally, no plan ever comes out exactly like you expected. Like I called in for the show and I got other people calling in to me just now and you know, we have to adapt a little bit here and there at the time. Mm-hmm. How do you adapt? So at any one of those points, we have kids who get paralyzed. They might not even, they might be hungry but not have an idea that they need food. Or they might know that they need food but aren't sure, so what's the plan when you're hungry and you need food? Oh, get food. And then what are the steps? Oh, get mom, bring her over to the fridge, um, or whatever that is. And right. even if you know that step, you can be paralyzed. And then, of course, we have a lot of people who, are pretty stuck with how they want to do things, and so when the plan changes, they fall apart. So you've got your developmental, your individual differences, and then of course it's all about relationships. I mean, we know that people learn best when they're in the uh, bosom of a, uh, a good, close relationship, and so we're paying mm-hmm. attention to the people around them and supporting those people and giving those people time to think about what might be helpful to try next because, you know, nothing ever works all the time. And mm-hmm. When we talk about, uh, I don't know if you, it sounds like you want to talk, but I can talk more a little bit about floor time and how that fits in if you like. Yeah, no, I would love to hear the difference between uh, DIR and floor time. Um, we're going to go to break in a few minutes here, but um, if you can um, briefly share what floor time is all about, because I think they're used interchangeably, and I'd love to differentiate them for our listeners. So the, the DIR philosophy is kind of an overarching philosophy of how to look at things. Floor time is a specific um, way of um, operationalizing that by um, basically paying attention to the person in front of you, trying to help them be regulated, um, trying to connect with them, and then create opportunities for back-and-forth interaction. So some of the buzzwords you hear are following the child's lead, where, you know, everybody's doing something all the time. They might just be scratching at the floor or banging a toy or something, and your job is to try to join them and become a part of that, maybe very gently um, interpose yourself, get in the way a little bit, not in a mean way, but just so you can be part of their world. If they're dropping something, you might get the supply of the things they're dropping and hand them to them just to create an interaction. And that's, you know, maybe on the floor, it's often called floor time because people are on the floor, but it also even happens in interaction with people uh, at all ages and all levels of challenge. So floor time is a moniker for a way of thinking in what you do in your technique. Um, so you don't want to confuse it too much with just, you know, get on the floor and let the kid do whatever they want. It's really becoming part of their world and working with them. It's on a continuum, and I know you have to go to break, on a continuum between a very structured approach where you're telling someone to do something on command or an approach uh, like Sunrise where you're, just, where you're watching uh, a lot more and taking a lot more time to do that. I would think of DIR floor time as, very much in the middle, kind of um, joining someone and then working with them to build on meaningful ideas together. Oh, that's wonderful. And I want to talk more about that. Um, I know you and I have talked a lot about that over the years and and what that looks like and and the purpose of it. And um, I'd love to um, spend some more time fleshing that out um, for the listeners so they have a good idea because you do hear those buzzwords in the field and 
then, you know, a lot of times people perceive them a certain way or they don't quite understand them fully. And um, I'd like to, you know, once I, I know for me personally, once I had a chance to see videos and learn from you on um, when we went through that process of comparing DIR and RDI, you know, I really was able to get a better picture of um, and compare what I thought I was understanding to what was really uh, what I was really seeing. So I would love to spend some more time talking about that. So um, but we're going to go to a quick break. And then uh, when we come back, we'll, we'll talk more about that. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. At Therapeutic Approach to Growth, we offer comprehensive and holistic supports to individuals with developmental and acquired disabilities. Our programs include parent education and guidance, speech therapy, occupational therapy, educational and behavioral support, and counseling. We assume competence and believe in treating the entire family system. We offer both in-person and long-distance services. We support our clients in any environment, from home to school and beyond. Mention this show for a free consultation. To learn more, you can reach us at tagforgrowth.com. Therapeutic Approach to Growth. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Therapeutic Approach to Growth. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also reach Brooke Wagner via email to bwagner at tagforgrowth.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back. I'm host Brooke Wagner here. And today I have with me child and family psychiatrist and DIR specialist, Dr. Joshua Fader. And uh, before the break, we were talking about uh, floor time and that idea of following the child's lead. And I would love to hear more about this and why it is so essential to the approach. Sure. Well, so here's the thing. A lot of times when we think about what we want for our kids, um, we love to see them be able to read and write, you know, do the things that you need to do to be able to function in the world. And so I think a lot of our programs are 
uh, centered around that sort of thing. And for a typical kid in school, they kind of roll with that pretty well, but some of our kids don't really find much meaning in that. So following someone's lead really means starting with what's important to that person and building on that together so that you're both building trust and your relationship and then, of course, folding in the various ideas that help you work in the world better. So as an example, there are some kids who I work with who are hyperlexic. They can just read, 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 but their comprehension just really isn't, you know, very good. So they might come in with their favorite book and just read it over to you over and over. And what we try to do is join them with that and then create the story in three dimensions, have um, maybe dolls or things that we can use to um, make it come to life a little bit, play them out a little bit. And then this is the hard part sometimes, even shifting the story so that the same characters can have slightly different adventures or outcomes. So you're broadening their um, ability to work with you in the world and deal with the world. And, of course, within that, it's beyond just the words, um, their, their, their understanding it better, but also the concepts. So you might have um, found the lost key or whatever it was, but maybe there's four lost keys and you've only found three and one's missing and you need that. So, so you're sort of bringing in other ideas, other concepts, academic type concepts as well that are you know, presumably developmentally or age appropriate for that child. But the whole idea is that if you don't start where someone is, a lot of times you just don't get buy-in. And again, um, while you can train somebody to answer a question correctly, that doesn't mean it's meaningful to them, and it also doesn't necessarily help them generalize to new adaptive situations. However, if you start with where they are and you're problem-solving with them and you're kind of creating a little bit of the problem because you're joining them and making it a bigger world, well, then you get them accustomed to uh, solving problems in the world and adapting and generalizing from what's meaningful to them to more broad uh, concepts and ideas. So that's a lot, (laughs) Um, but that is kind of the idea behind following someone's Okay, wonderful. No, I'm really glad we talked about that. And I, you know, really connect with how you are building on that trust, as you mentioned, and it's very respectful. Um, And, you know, you're systematically kind of expanding their world so that they begin to think more dynamically and and can, um, you know, add on little challenges here and there in a way that's really safe and supportive. So. Yeah, the other thing, I, you know, I'm no RDI expert, but I've really enjoyed, we, Brooke and I did a number of videos that are up on YouTube, you can Google those. Um, they're, they're not very well produced, at least the ones that I recorded, which <laughs> tried to make it better. But um, one of the things that I've learned a lot from uh, my connection with the RDI community is to really appreciate the concept of perspective taking, and that's something that this floor time approach uh, really uh, works on, because what it does is it helps uh, the child um, recognize that you're not going away and you have a different way of looking at things that's somewhat different, and um, they kind of have to deal with that. So, for instance, um, if I have a child in my uh, office, and this is actually a common thing where they're reciting their video game to me over and over and kind of playing it out in their head a little bit, well, then when we start making that um, Uh, you know, adding objects to that so I can be part of it, and then I don't understand the rules, well, then they have to start explaining it to me, and when they start making up new rules, I'm like, well, hang on, 
you know, we kind of, I don't understand how you change it. So, so they grudgingly, uh, mm-hmm. because I've kind of gone with them partway, will meet me a little bit. So instead of having someone who's just in their own head over and over doing the same thing, we're slowly edging our way in. And it's fun. I mean, it's fun for the child. Now, having said that, not all moments are fun. And so while DIR floor time very much is about pleasure and pleasurable ideas, it's also very much about difficult moments and how do you set limits. And so that basis of trust that you build also does give you the uh, ability, um, the credit with the child often to be able to say, well, look, no, you know, we're not going into the street or whatever it is. And so that's not a game. You know, they can kind of tell the difference between what's playing and what isn't, I think, a little bit better because of that. And when people are having a tough time because life isn't always fun, um, your other job is to go with that as well. Not to say, oh, it's okay, oh, it's going to be fine, but I can see that you're having trouble. I can see that you're in pain. There's an empathy first kind Mm -hmm. of approach. So follow the child's lead is kind of one idea. Empathy first is another idea that Mm -hmm. I think is, uh, I hope, a take-home that people can see. For a lot of our kids, they've got IEPs, right? And for a lot of those IEPs, they have behavioral support plans. And for a lot of those behavioral support plans, we look at the triggers, we look at responses, But if the one thing people do first is to pause, take a breath, and be empathic and try to figure Mm -hmm. out, okay, what is it that this child's feeling and can I feel it with them a little bit, then oftentimes things de-escalate a lot more easily. Not always, but a lot of times you're then thinking, oh, well, you know, maybe there is another reason. It isn't just, quote, unquote, a a behavior, but, you know, they're Mm -hmm. upset about something. It's not Mm -hmm. just about escape, but it's escape because it's really hard to write or it's really hard to be in this room or I'm mm-hmm. having a bad day. And you don't want to go overboard with no limits at all, but you want to be empathic enough so that you've got a real partnership with somebody so that you can move forward together. Mm-hmm. No, I could not agree more. And I'm really glad you brought up those points because I think that is such a dance and such a careful balance, and but so important. And I think that a lot of times there is a misconception with the developmental models that there isn't limit setting or, you know, that's just not part of it. And, and that couldn't be further from the truth. It's just a matter of really looking beyond the behavior and, and seeing what's actually happening. And, and is there something we can do so that the child doesn't have so much uncertainty and they do feel well supported that they don't have that behavior or, you know, that eloping or resistance. Um, and it's such a beautiful process to see kids have that uh, added support and then all of a sudden come alive and want to connect and become internally motivated to want more. So I'm so glad right. you mentioned that. They, the, they, they won't leave you alone. They keep wanting Exactly. To <laughs> then you have the opposite problem. I love it. I love when that's the problem. (laughs) So I'd love to talk about the evaluation process. Um, What does this look like, and what is the main uh, focus of it? Um, Well, look, in my psychiatric practice, I have the benefit of doing what I believe is a fairly complete clinical psychiatric evaluation. So I uh, set up a minimum of four appointments with people where I'm meeting with parents first, where they're um, getting the, uh, all the records and contact information for everybody who's working or has worked with the child. Um, and then right after that, right after I'm hearing from them all their thoughts about their child developmental history, medical history, the current worries that they have, what's going on at school and home and favorite activities, all that stuff, right? 
Mm-hmm. Then I want to meet the child right after, so everything is fresh in my mind. And again, I'm a doctor, right? So I bring people in, and part of what I want to accomplish is height, and weight, and blood pressure, and pulse, and maybe a screening neurologic exam. But really, what I, the way I'm starting is where they are. So you walk into the waiting room, and the kids play in a video game, or they've got their nose in a book. And typically, a parent's like, all right, chop, chop. You know, time is money, kid. Get in that room with Vader. And I'm like, well, hang on. You know, let's just give them a little bit of time and let's see if we can transition, stuff like that. Um, and a lot of the time, um, uh, I'm seeing the child a little bit alone and a little bit with the parents. Sometimes it's all with the family. And sometimes a kid is coming in by themselves at first, but I usually figure out a way to work a little bit together as well because our goal in the end really is to have caregivers, supporting caregivers in a way that they can support their kids better. So I really need to see those interactions. But it is also true that a little bit of work that, a little bit of work that I do with the child, I can get a sense of, you know, how they respond to me, but I'm never going to see them as much as other people. So, so it's kind of a mix, but in the course of everything that I do, um, I'm usually taking whatever they're doing or whatever they're interested in and building on that, turning that into a conversation, into a game, into some sort of play. Now, having said that, there are some people who, you know, they're laying there like a lock. They're not really doing much. Maybe they've had a long day at school or nothing's happening. And so then I have to maybe add a little bit of energy or do something with them to try to get them going a little bit. So when people are very, very low, tone, low power, or they're very sad, I'm joining them a little bit at first maybe adding a little bit of energy, seeing if I can animate a little bit to edge them up so that we can um, see how well they interact. If they're way over the top, I'm going to try to join them to about 80% and then structure that a little bit and bring them down. So if you have a kid who's just all over the place, a whirlwind and throwing, I have very light toys. A lot of them are sponges because I don't want things thrown at me too much. But if they're just like all over the place, and they're throwing things. I might give that directionality. So I'm like, whoa, this is really fun. Then I'm starting to throw things into a big bucket or something, and then maybe they start doing it. And so we're just very gently taking this activity and giving a little bit of organization so that we can see if we can create some kind of interaction. So mm-hmm. wherever the child is, you've got to kind of meet them where they are. And then the, the trick, in a way, is to try to figure out, will parents come in and do that? Do they think you're just crazy? Why aren't you just sitting there asking questions? Why isn't this a pencil and paper test? Uh, why aren't you just checking his reflexes, which, which I do uh, to a degree uh, for a lot of people, not everybody. But um, so it's, it's variable. So you see the parents, you see, see the child. Then I start reviewing records, making calls to everybody and their cousins because really what's happening out there is important to know. And if they have video, it's great to see video clips of people out in the world. That season mm-hmm. is just running down all the people and looking at the records and everything usually takes a couple weeks, and then I bring the child back in, see the child again, at least twice, sometimes more, but kids are always different the second time, mm-hmm. and so I see the child again, and we do our shtick, and we, I try to make sure it's a little bit different, so we're not in some rhythm of always doing the exact same thing, and then I meet with parents again and let them know, you know where I'm at and what I think is going on, what I think might mm-hmm. be helpful at all levels, both the social uh, uh, approach, the psychological things that I think may be going on with the child, and all the, obviously the biological things as well that we might do to support um, that child's function. 
Oh, that's wonderful. No, I love that it's such a supportive process. And it sounds, you know, I know a lot of our clients go into testing and it's just, it's very overwhelming and can feel uncomfortable. Um, but it sounds like it's a very supportive environment that you're creating um, where you're seeing that potential. You know, you're giving them a chance to, to really show their true potential. And um, I think that's such an important part of supporting our clients and really learning about them. And, you know, that speaks to diagnosis, Brooke. Um, I know one mm-hmm. of your uh, questions uh, before the show, you were uh, wondering about what kind of diagnoses I commonly see. And this is mm-hmm. a great time to talk about that because there are kids who, when you provide a, a, an environment that, uh, well, you know, context is important, right? Mm-hmm. Some people look very, quote, unquote, autistic in some settings and in other settings, supported settings where, they're kind of engaged, they're familiar, they're doing, a, you know, they're doing so much better. You would take a video of it or you'd go be a fly on the wall and you'd say, well, I don't really see it. I don't see the autism. And then you put them in a different environment where they're in some fashion overwhelmed or uh, people don't naturally respond to their needs and they become very rigid, their thinking becomes rigid, and um, their abilities really fragment and then they look very much like they're on the spectrum. So it's just mm-hmm. a very interesting phenomenon. And part of our goal is to see what are those differences and how do we help people become more able to tolerate a wider variety of environments so that their mm-hmm. symptoms, if you will, are uh, less um, problematic in more stressful uh, kinds of situations for them. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It makes a lot of sense. It does. And I think that so often our kids go through such rigorous testing and they come out very stressed. We had a client recently that went through some rigorous testing and um, through their, due to the triannual and just became very stressed and regressed just due to the testing. And it's just so unfortunate that they have to go through, you know, our clients go through so many different evaluations and different professionals. And, you know, I think that the more that we can provide a supportive testing environment, the you know obviously the more supportive we can be, but also the the more we're going to see what they're capable of, and and then expand it from there into other environments. And I would add to that that the stress on families is tremendous. Obviously, I've been through mm-hmm. that myself, but um, I just feel like um, we're often expecting so much of parents. In fact, that's one of the questions that comes up a lot with DIR floor time. They're saying, "Well, you're trying to support the parents. Is that putting all the burden of cure, if you will?" or improvement on the parents. And the answer should not be that we're doing that. The answer should be that we're working together to make every moment a little bit better. And in fact, Mm -hmm. what we find in our randomized controlled trials of research is that parent stress goes down, not up, when we're providing Mm -hmm. parent support so that the interactions are more productive interactions. But having Mm -hmm. said all that, people are pretty traumatized by the process of diagnosis and treatment, both uh, families Mm -hmm siblings included, as well as the children. And that stress doesn't just dissipate over the course of an afternoon necessarily. As you say, sometimes people go through a difficult moment, whether it's a placement that's not working out or a family mm-hmm. breaks up, you know, divorce or something, or, um, you know, other traumatic events that might happen on the playground. I mean, the, the impact of those can last for a very long time. People can be mm-hmm. very upset. I mean, just in everyday life, if you're in a car accident or, or something bad mm-hmm. happens to work, you don't have to be on the spectrum for that to, to really impact you for a long time. It could trigger right. depression. 
all kinds of things can happen. And I think we're often um, just not as aware as we could be of mm-hmm. uh, how hard life can be and how um, understanding we need to be uh, mm-hmm. when people are going through difficult times so that we're not having expectations of, all right, well, your testing's over. You should feel fine now. Should, should, right. should. <clears throat> exactly. So no, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I'm so glad that that came up today. Um, I think it's an awareness, a shift in awareness um, for professionals, um, you know, not to just kind of always be in that mindset of just getting the task done, but just, you know, being more present with how people are experiencing what you're presenting to them. And um, we're going to take a quick break, but um, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about um, the value and importance of uh, presenting a warm and highly engaging approach uh, to supporting your clients. Because I know you and I have talked a lot about about that over the years in our work and um, I'd love to hear more about that. So with that, we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Transformational healing includes energy medicine as well as hands-on healing. Tune in every week to Transformational Healing with Dr. Bonnie Morrow. If you want to know more about the business and science of energy fields, chakras, and the medical and spiritual community, join our expert guests as we work together to bring you closer to your personal health vision. Transformational Healing is heard live every Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. At Therapeutic Approach to Growth, we offer comprehensive and holistic supports to individuals with developmental and acquired disabilities. Our programs include parent education and guidance, speech therapy, occupational therapy, educational and behavioral support, and counseling. We assume competence and believe in treating the entire family system. We offer both in-person and long-distance services. We support our clients in any environment, from home to school and beyond. Mention this show for a free consultation. To learn more, you can reach us at tagforgrowth.com. Therapeutic approach to growth. Biohacking for Health is working with your individual biology to gain access to and control over the systems within your body. It allows you to explore your biology and improve health and wellness. Each of us has unique genetic profiles and physiology that require individualized approaches. On Biohacking for Optimal Health, Dr. Daniel Stickler and his expert guests provide a roadmap to navigate the world of biohacking human potential. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Therapeutic Approach to Growth. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also reach Brooke Wagner via email to bwagner at tagforgrowth.com. Now back to the show. 
Welcome back. I'm host Brooke Wagner here. Today I have with me child and family psychiatrist and DIR specialist, Dr. Joshua Fader. And um, right before the break, we um, uh, had touched on the idea, and we've kind of touched on it throughout the show. You brought it up here and there, um, that um, importance of being really warm and highly engaging um, with your clients and how that's that's such an essential part to Uh, the approach. So I'd love to hear more about what this looks like and uh, why it's so important. Well, think about it this way. When you're getting your appendix out, um, maybe you care about how warm the surgeon is, and maybe you care most about how good they are at taking your appendix out without messing up, right? So sometimes in uh, healthcare, it's less about... um, less about bedside manner um, when it really comes right down to it. But, of course, you feel better, and actually people heal better in all branches of healthcare when um, the people who are caring for them are warm. Mm-hmm. So that's one way of sort of easing into this idea that in most of our interventions, think about all the different people. If you're a parent out there, think about all the different people who you've brought your child to. And some of them are um, probably more able than others to connect with you, and some of them aren't. And then the question is, who's competent and who isn't? So I think this is a complicated question because I've had some people who are a little bit like drill sergeants who nevertheless get more productive and even fun interaction out of a child than anybody else has. Right, and then other times when somebody has been, you know, very warm and very nice and very willing to listen, and nothing's happened. And then there's the opposite as well, where you've had people who are all about being a drill sergeant, and they don't connect with the child, and the kid is just stressed. Or you've had people who have felt very understood by someone who's empathic. So I don't think it's an either-or kind of thing. What I think it really has to do with is trying to um, have uh, more tools at your disposal about how you need to be to be able to work with somebody productively and to have colleagues who, if you're not the right person, you can refer them to because different people kind of need different things and sometimes even different things in different phases of their um, lives, uh, whether it's you know their intervention lives or their developmental lives or even the situation. There's a difference between coaching a family sometimes and maybe later working with the same child as a teenager who is now able to tell you more about their interactions with kids at school but want sort of empathic privacy, whereas before what they needed was sort of a more family-based and even somewhat more structured approach. But throughout all of that, I think the word respect is a little bit more appropriate than merely um, warmth. Um, mm-hmm. And by that I mean... Um, trying to figure out what is um, appropriate, what's helpful for the person right now. Um, is that, that clear? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's so highly individualized. Um, I know that's, you know, you're really taking a close look at all the different factors and, and what's important and meaningful um, and respectful for the individual. And, you know, I can really connect with that. I know that's something that we really try to have in place um, in RDI as well. And um, so that everything is customized and individualized. Um, Now, I would love to learn more about what a consultation session looks like um, and who is qualified to offer floor time and DIR. 
Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So, so let me talk a little bit about, um, well, consultation session. Um, but you might want to clarify what you mean by that. We talked a little bit about uh, my assessment, which is kind of like a consultation. Are you talking about just a regular, you know, somebody comes in the office and we're going to do floor time kind of session? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I did think just so the listeners have a, an idea of what the model looks like. Is it uh, is there a structure to it, or is it something that is just very fluid and based on each individual client? Well, it is, of course, based on each individual client, but I'll, I'll give you a quick range, uh, for instance. Okay. So um, later today, I'm going to see an adult who I've been working with for a long time who has an interest in a particular kind of activity that they like. They usually talk a lot about that activity, and I'm trying to work with them in a way that is uh, responding to that, joining that, and um, enjoying it with them uh, on the one hand, um, and on the other hand, talking about, you know, nuts and bolts, practical things about how they're getting along at their job and, um, uh, and what that's like, but paying attention to uh, that person's um, presentation in the moment with me. Are they rocking a lot? Are they doing other things that uh, show that they might be a little bit nervous about it? Are we able to help that person be more conscious of that? Uh, am I able to help that person regulate and are we able to talk about both their interest area but also what's going on in the outside world? On the other hand, uh, before this hour, I was with somebody who uh, was, you know, very active and, um, you know, sort of bubbling with fun, but that can also be... Um, you know, a little out of hand. Um, parents are lovely, you know, working with them, trying to join that. And we were thinking about, you know, how do you uh, work with them in a way that um, is both fun and productive and safe at the same time? Uh, so mm-hmm. these things look, you know, very different from one uh, person to the next. Um, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's such an age range. So it's hard to say what one session looks like, but I would say the thread that runs through all of them is that I try to start where that person is, try to join with what that person's doing, try not to get too distracted by um, the administrative stuff like, are we changing a medicine or do we need to do this or that? Because it's really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever you start going in that direction, then you get a message <laughs> that you <laughs> veered off, that you've broken rank, and uh, mm-hmm. the person becomes more of uh, you know doing whatever what they're doing and, and draws your... Uh, attention back to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That sounds good. No, no. It sounds like you're doing kind of a combination of modeling for the family, um, but then also guiding them. Is that is that what a session with a parent would that is that what that would look like? Very much so. Um, and it's really more about the parent than me. Um, as ideally, um, mm-hmm. I would much rather um, uh, sort of see what a parent does and think about uh, how great one thing worked and wonder about, you know, what else we might try or they might try um, to get more out of um, uh, a piece of an interaction as, like, the next step, just to see, to see what happens. Um, caregivers are far more important than we are, and our mm-hmm. job is to respect and support caregivers so that their interactions can be more productive and fun and meaningful and developmentally mm-hmm. supportive. That doesn't mean that um, we don't have anything to offer, and sometimes um, my ability to get something going with a child might be pretty good, um, but the last thing that I want to do is to make it about my session. 
if I can avoid that. Now, again, with an adult who's coming in, that's a little bit different, but with most, but even with the adults, a lot of times we're working with the families and caregivers around them and supporting uh, those caregivers. Uh, mm-hmm. But for the most part, especially for infants, children, and going up, you know, through the ages, um, the idea is to look at the interactions between other people and see what we can do to support those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I want to make sure we get really quickly to um, who is qualified to offer floor time in DIR. Sure. Um, let, let me let me preface that by uh, again stating you know, this is an evidence based approach. Uh, Mm -hmm. We have randomized controlled trials. In fact, one of the very best pieces of research in the autism field is a study by Rick Solomon from now three years ago or two and a half years ago that showed um, Play Project, which is a manualized DIR approach um, provided in the home uh, uh, once a month, half a day, or in the clinic once a week for an hour, was far more effective than treatment as usual and demonstrated people coming off uh, the ADOS in terms of whether they um, were qualifying for an autism diagnosis, showing parent mm-hmm. stress rates diminishing. Just very impressive. There's another randomized controlled trial out of Thailand by Pajarea. There's others coming out of Merit in uh, York, uh, out of York University in Toronto, including a study which hasn't been published yet showing brain change um, mm. in uh, structural brain change in people who responded. So this is real stuff. This isn't Mm -hmm. mumbo-jumbo or magic. And I have to tell you that there are people who are just only hearing um, other approaches and uh, some who only fund, like, for instance, behavioral approaches and then do these lists of what's appropriate and then don't include developmental approaches Mm -hmm. and may list them with, like, shock therapy. That's being done right now as we speak in Australia, um, and we're fighting that. It's, you know, Mm -hmm. wrong. (laughs) <laughs> to suppress research. That's happened in other fields. Happens in pharmaceutical uh, um, industry as well, where people would not have transparency about research to tell you what really works and what doesn't. But having said that, mm-hmm. so the um, opportunities to learn about floor time are really easy. You can go to mm-hmm. icdl.com or perfectum.org, and you can get to all of these through my website, circlestretch.com which also has some graphic novellas about floor time and some of my talks and things like that and some other, uh, it's all free, you know, on Circle Stretch. Mm -hmm. um, And my blog, which talks about some of this stuff in evidence-based practice. But um, Mm -hmm. you can get to ICDL, you can get to Perfectum, and we also do local training, regional training, worldwide, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's very easy to get an intro course for any um, person, parent or professional, and uh, Perfectum's actually having a conference starting Friday in Pasadena, if you can get there, Friday, Saturday, mm-hmm. Sunday, uh, where they're going to be rolling out a parent uh, uh, program to be training parents, which is going to be outstanding. ICDL mm-hmm. is having their conference in the fall in Orlando, and uh, that's also helpful to go to. But the training is easy. There's a lot of online support. A lot of, um, uh, a lot of the work is done through real-time classes, but done through uh, web modules and online uh, uh, kinds of um, uh, learning that's uh, been found to be very effective. So there's local in-person training as well as um, uh, 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 distance learning that's uh, uh, available to people. Um, so not that's hard to great. Do. So to, to do floor time, yeah, you know, you read a book and you try it. To say that you're going to provide floor time, as a practitioner, you need to have some kind of certification 
And so there is a mm-hmm. process of going through different levels of certificate training, both with ICDL and with Perfectum. And they are, they are different organizations um, in terms of their approaches to training, although uh, the basic principles of DIR floor time are, in fact, the same. Uh, okay. There's some confusion about that, but, you know, I would say go to both what you like and go with what works for you. But if you go to one, absolutely dabble in the other because you're going to learn something. Right. Absolutely. No, I'm so glad you mentioned that um, because we just have one more minute um, and then we've got to go. But um, last question, um, is there anything really, really quickly that families can do um, at the state level with advocacy and pushing um, all of the great things that you've been working on and expanding the types of therapies that are available to families? Yes, I think people should join our effort to make sure that families have choice in treatment. You can go to uh, the, uh, our website, um, dirfloortimecoc.com, and um, help push policy. We've got legislation that we think is helpful and legislation uh, in, uh, that's being looked at right now, which we think is not helpful, um, and our website talks about that. Um, we certainly uh, appreciate contributions. There are millions of dollars arrayed by certain interest groups to just protect certain kinds of approaches and keep out parents from having choice. Our goal is not to just have DIR for everybody. It's to have parent choice for all evidence-based practices. And if people are willing to join us in that effort, we can hopefully get better informed consent, better access to care, better outcomes for everybody. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, I'm so glad you had a chance to mention that. And I just so appreciate you being on the show today. It was so much fun. Great to connect and have an awesome conversation uh, similar to how we have had in the past on our videos. And uh, again, you can find those on YouTube. If you want to check out our videos, um, we were talking about DIR and RDI and comparing the two approaches and how they're similar and different. And uh, thank you so much, Dr. Fader, uh, for being here today. It was wonderful. And um, we're going to be back next uh, Tuesday. 11 o'clock Pacific Standard Time and just have a wonderful day. Thank you again for listening. Be sure to tune in to Therapeutic Approach to Growth and join Brooke Wagner again every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.